Hello and welcome to Adventures in Venue Land, an EAMC podcast. This is your all-access pass to go backstage and behind the scenes with some of the brightest minds that cross the scope of the live entertainment industry. I'm Dave Rettelberger. And I'm Paul Hooper. We'll introduce you to some of our favorite people as we dive deep into the world of live touring shows and the venues that host them. Heading out to the Pacific Northwest today to check in with a longtime EAMC friend, Rosie Sell. Good morning, Rosie. Good morning, you guys. Good morning. Good morning. First things first, tell us where you're at right now because you've been a little bit here, a little bit there, bouncing around the country, but now you're part of something very new and exciting. Talk to us about what's happening out there. Yeah, no, I have a little bit, at least for the last couple of years, for sure. So I'm out in Seattle. I'm at Climate Pledge Arena. It's the same site where Key Arena was, which is where I was prior to my stint in the Midwest. It's at the Seattle Center campus, which was originally built in 1962 for the World's Fair. So this building that I'm at now, it's the same roof. That's the only thing that's the same. We've dug down all the way, demolished it, held up the roof, which was a 44 million pounds roof, held it up with temporary steel and then are building a brand new state-of-the-art arena right underneath it and preserving the historic landmark. We're doing all of that. And then on top of it, we had a naming rights announcement that happened in this summer. And it was the Climate Pledge, which is an initiative by Amazon and Global Optimism. They got together and said, we want to make ourselves carbon neutral by 2040, which is 10 years earlier than the Paris Agreement. And they wanted to use the power of sports and entertainment on the arena space to tell that story. First, as an arena nerd, why keep the roof? Why don't you just demolish the whole thing and start over? So do you know why they kept the roof? I do. I lived it a little bit. It's a really interesting place. So Seattle Center, like I said, built in 1962 for the World's Fair. And as soon as the Oakview Group and AG, when I was part of their organization bidding on the same thing, applied to change the building, it was put through a landmark status. Ah. And that's what happens when you have a building that was built 50 years ago, has a prominent architect tied to it. There's a bunch of different criteria that landmarks looks at when they say, how do we preserve you know, some historic character for this important time in the city's history and certainly the World's Fair, which was when the Space Needle was built, obviously one of the most iconic or if not the most iconic parts of Seattle. So you have to go through that type of process. It's a challenge. I think you'll ask all of our architects, it's a challenge to build a brand new facility underneath a roof that was built in 1962. (laughs) But you know what actually ended up happening with our naming rights partner that you couldn't have played this out better is there's this embodied carbon is something that happens when you calculate that. I don't know all the science behind it, but you do calculate it when you're building a new building. So what does it take to demolish the old building and then put up the new exterior, put up the roof? We've saved a ton of embodied carbon by recycling the roof. So it actually ended up working in this weird way in our favor, but we had to preserve it for historic landmark purposes. And I think that it's been a part of the Seattle skyline for so long that, at least for me, there's a real nostalgia about it. It's gotten some ups and downs, but I think when you see what's going on underneath that roof, people are going to be really excited. I will say, too, as a venue photographer and admirer of other photos of venues, it is a iconic look. You know, I can always see a wide shot of an artist playing and I'll know immediately that it was Key Arena because of just the look of the roof. Just like uh, Madison Square Garden has a very iconic roof to it. So 
I think as much as it probably presented a huge challenge, it is a little bit of the uniqueness of the venue that I think is something that hopefully people appreciate. Thank you, Paul. I've been saying that too. I'm like, that's the best part about it is when you take a picture inside the building, you know where you are. And you can't do that in a lot of other places. So let's talk a little bit about this climate pledge and Amazon and and how this all works. So again, boy, what a joy. Let me just say this. What a joy to be talking about naming rights and fun stuff like this as opposed to delays and cancellations. So what has it been like with this naming rights deal? Just in general, of course, Amazon being a huge name, Climate Pledge, which is a very unique venue name, and then doing it in 2020. It's been a really fun ride. Amazon is a huge player in our market, as they are actually globally, obviously, but they are a huge player in our market and their team has been really, really fun to work with. They're unique in how they do business, but they really look at everything and say, we don't have to do it that way. We don't, we're Amazon. We don't have to do it that way. We're going to do it different and better. And that's been really exciting. And it's every little piece of the building that you can think about. Obviously, technology is going to be a huge component. We're a huge tech city. So we're going to be doing some things from a fan experience standpoint that I don't think have been done before or not at the scale. So all of the different pieces of their Amazon business from AWS, Amazon Music, we've been talking with all of their departments. So how do we do this building a little bit better and a little bit more creative and unique? The Climate Pledge is really interesting because I'm sure as most people are saying like, okay, it's not Amazon Arena, which is something they very much didn't want. They didn't need the brand recognition. They didn't need awareness (laughs) of what Amazon is. What a great problem that is to have. Right. They're like, we don't need people to know, you know, they already do. But it was really cool. And and from what I understand, it was Jeff Bezos' wishes. We want to do this and we want people to come along with us on this journey of becoming net neutral. And it's really hard. It's not an easy thing to do. But looking at our building and saying, if a sports and entertainment arena can do it, other people can do it. Because we are traditionally not a very green business. You look at a lot of the different things you sort of inherit in our business from transportation, that 70% of our carbon footprint is from transportation. So we'll be offsetting a bulk of that. All of our energy from the building will come from renewable energy sources. So we actually had a gas line and stopped building it. It's cut off. We have no fossil fuels coming into the arena. So I think for all the arena nerds that are thinking out there, and especially when I came along, I'm like, how are you going to cook pizza? Like, how right. how is this going to happen? Right? Yeah. We did it. That's amazing. Yeah. We've got really smart people. Our concessionaire, Delaware North, came on board and they're all in on it too, which is exciting. So there's that piece of it, which is in itself a huge component. You have a landmarked building, so you can't put solar panels on the roof. We're building an atrium right next to it. That's going to be our front door that will come into the arena. That'll have solar panels on it. We'll have solar panels on our First Avenue garage to help offset some of that and more of a visual reminder. Then we're taking our, I've got my little cup here, rain, rain, coffee, rain. If you can do solar power in Seattle, we should be able to do it anywhere, right? You can. You can. Actually, there's a ton of stuff in Seattle that's powered by solar energy or more water energy. I'll give you that. But our roof, though, is going to have cisterns that are going to be underground and that will collect the rainwater off the roof and do a lot of different things in the building, but specifically resurface the ice for hockey, which is a pretty large use of water. Oh, interesting. Wow. And I think the one that I'm most excited about that was really... I mean, I'm excited about all of it. If those who know me, I am kind of a sustainability nerd. Not, I can always do better. I think we always can. But I am, you know, slapping plastic forks away from people. That's me. 
that was one thing that's really exciting too, is that we're not going to have single use plastics in the building at all. That one blew my mind because I just, I'm like, how do we do that? I know Coachella has banned straws. I know there's a ton of other sustainability efforts around our industry that are doing that. But we had the wherewithal and the leverage to take our beverage partners and say, if you can't do this, then we're not going to do business with you. And that's a huge thing. And so we haven't announced our beverage partner, but both of the ones that we're talking with, I know are on board. And so we'll be single use plastic free when we open outside of water bottles and pop bottles. Those will be coming in 2024 when the global supply chain catches up. You're kind of hitting on this and something that Amazon's hoping for. But I mean, we can all look at Golden One Center in Sacramento and how green they've been. And, you know, maybe this is hopefully a trend going forward as newer buildings open or renovate that they can not only look at ways to sort of make the building green, but also approach just sustainability on the F&B side and embracing ways to make that better. I mean, I think there's so much room for innovation there. Definitely. And it's been fun too, just since we did the naming rights announcement, buildings from all over the world or sports organizations are like, okay, how, how did you do this though? <laughs> so, so it's been kind of fun and that's the intent, right? The intent is to raise awareness for the fact that you can do this. There's the technology, it exists now. It's, you just have to be progressive and really want to push forward and have a vision to do it. And we've partnered with some really great people. Obviously, Amazon are a huge resource for climate scientists, which we've, we partner with them. They're going to be a huge part of how we are transparent about what we're doing and the levels that we're hitting, making sure that we're doing that. But then we brought on McLennan Design with Jason McLennan, who I love his little bio quote. It's, he's the Steve Jobs of sustainable green building. And he's so cool. He's so great. And he just looks at it. He's like, we can do better. We should be doing better. And here's how we can do it. And so he's been our lead designer through the process and helping us figure out how to do it. Yeah, we've been trying to do some zero waste stuff here. And it's not easy, especially right now, as the tides have turned to guest safety, making sustainability all of a sudden a priority or spending that money to get to that point is becoming a challenge. It's great that you guys have that chance to be on the forefront and start the building that way. David, I think that's really what we have an advantage is that we don't have to retrain people. The building's been closed for two years now and will open, you know, fall of next year. So we're not going to have garbage cans on the concourse. You won't be able to throw anything away. And so you're not going to have to retrain people. It's just going to be how they're going to experience the arena. So I think that that is an extremely big advantage because as we all know, it's really hard to get people out of the habits that they've been in for years and years and years. And it's just those little things. And we talk about it all the time is we just need to educate folks on how this is going to be in our building. And then it's just going to become habit. And that's what we're hoping for. Yeah. So walk me through that. What's the guest experience like with no garbage cans? And isn't the fear that everything just ends up on the ground? We're pretty lucky. Seattle's a very, very recycle and compost friendly city. I think, I don't know the exact stats, but I know we're, we're in the top in the country. And so there's restaurants and there's places in our city right now that don't have garbage cans. So it's not a foreign concept, but you're going to have two options. You'll see recycle and there'll be the nice big infographic and you'll see compost, but we're not giving people something that they won't be able to decipher. It's going to be one or the other because there won't be single use plastic. And I think that that's where a lot of waste diversion goes awry is that you, oh, this is plastic. It can be recycled. Well, it actually can't because it's not a certain type of plastic. So then you throw it in the recycle and then everything has to get, you know, pushed in anyway. But I think being able to build this up from scratch and not even introduce those things into the building at the first point will help us. That's such a great idea. It just makes perfect sense. But the most important hard-hitting question is, do you get free Amazon Prime for yourself? <laughs> I was going to ask the same thing. <laughs> oh, 
oh man, I should ask them. No, I don't, but they don't need to worry because I've been an Amazon Prime member for, I, I, I don't want to tell you how long. That's a good line. Even if it's not true, we'll stick with it. No, I have. Ask a few folks around. I thought for sure I was the one keeping them afloat. And especially now during this time, it's so easy. And in Seattle, obviously they're based here. So we get a lot of the new technologies that they roll out. We get to test them. So we had Amazon Go, Amazon Prime. Now when you could order something and it would come to you in two hours, we got that before it rolled out to the rest of the world. And so we just expect it now. It's like, I don't need to go anywhere. I just, I ordered some hooks for my bathroom. This is very random. No, no. That's... But they came literally, I was like thinking I'd get them in a couple of days. And then they just showed up on the door like three hours later. It's like, oh, all right. That's what I'm doing. Do you remember either of you guys, Paula or Rosie, do you either remember your first Amazon order? Like that first time you ordered? I'm going to look this up. Because for me, I'll tell you, I think it was the Matrix on DVD. Right. And I was so excited. I got a free T-shirt with the deal because they wanted you to try Amazon. It goes back a few years. But I just remember my mind being blown of like, because it used to be, you know, for us old guys, you ordered something in the mail and it was four to six weeks till it got there, which is mind blowing when you think about it now. And so I remember something coming in just a few days and it was delivered to your house. And you're like, whoa, this is so it was just it was just mind blowing. It was probably like a $30 DVD and you were like, what a deal. Yes, I'm sure it was. Yes. Amazing. Only $30 for this DVD. <laughs> now you can go to a store and they'll pay you to take 20 DVDs out with you. I know. Please help us reduce the inventory. Oh man, I don't know. It, there's like, so- Rosie, are you searching your Amazon history? I am because now I'm curious. So 2008 was the first, but then there's archived. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so you really have been, you weren't lying. You've been an Amazon stand since the beginning. Probably, let's just say, you know, Bezos is, I don't even know what he's worth currently, but the money you've paid to him since the very beginning, that's appreciated. You know, you're probably a quarter of his wealth, I would say. I'm waiting for my call. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so has he been involved in this process at all with the naming rights? You know, been on a Zoom where he's kind of hiding in the corner there? No, unfortunately not. Um, <laughs> no, it was a really, and I think our partnerships team would tell, it was probably one of the most challenging deals, I would say, just because there's just so many pieces to it, right? And it's a really complex system. We're doing something that's not been done before. We're not just slapping up a corporate brand on top of the building. Sure. They're really thoughtful about how they want it presented, which I think is refreshing. You know, it's not like, hey, we want our name plastered everywhere physically possible and as big as possible. We've had them go through like some signage things and they're like, well, actually let's tone this down. We want to be respectful of the neighborhood. And I'm what? Tone it down? Yeah. I love their team. They've been great. I was not involved directly in any of the deal points and that's probably for the best. <laughs> it was one thing that it was really kept tight. As people know, people, I think in Seattle, at least had some thoughts like, oh, it's probably going to be Amazon arena or Amazon prime or prime arena, something like that. I know they'd been talking to other companies as well. But we turned it around in about a week, I want to say, wow. from my perspective. I got the brand guide about three to four days before we launched. So I was like sweating bullets for a little bit. It's kind of fun that even if people may have predicted it was Amazon, that you are coming out with it being Climate Pledge Arena, right? It's like a little bit of a... It's a surprise. It's a surprise, right? Even if people got it right, they got it wrong. You know, they're, oh, wow, I kind of guessed Amazon, but that's something totally different. And what is this? You know, it, it makes it a little unique. The headline on the Seattle Times the day after we announced was Amazon delivers arena surprise. So there you go. Oh, nice. Oh, perfect. That's great. I'm watching these beautiful new stadiums open up in Las Vegas. 
and Los Angeles and appear on TV that are just, they're just unbelievable and they're empty, right? Yeah, doesn't it break your heart? Talking about where you guys are at and kind of, are you looking to host a grand opening event? Is it too soon to see what that's going to be? And how has that impacted your planning? It's funny because when I started here in January and is kind of getting onboarded and going through the process, like thinking, okay, now we're in this pandemic. Okay, this is, first of all, I felt extremely lucky and fortunate to be in a position where I'm at a venue that is not open to go through this. And I just... Seriously, I have I have so much sympathy for our entire industry. It breaks my heart. To your point, having those teams that are at Legion Stadium and at SoFi who've worked so hard over the last three to five years. Oh, the dog is back. Watch out. Um, <laughs> and watching them open, not what they wanted to, not to Garth Brooks and not to Taylor Swift shows. And if anyone's been a part of a grand opening, it's a cathartic thing. You've worked so hard and then you, it's just not you know what it was. We've been fortunate in the fact that we're on track for construction. We had a slight slowdown or a little pause, I guess, for a couple of days while we sanitized the entire building in March and put in our protocols, which we've been really, really fortunate. And Mortensen is our contractor. has been doing a great job. But as far as planning for the opening, we don't have an open date yet, which makes it difficult to slide in talent, obviously, because we want to make sure that the building will be ready. But we're going through those conversations about what that looks like. The other challenge is the NHL. We're going to be home to the Seattle Kraken, the NHL's 32nd team, which we're really, really excited about. And they're a phenomenal team to work with as well. But now the NHL season is a little bit in flux. So how does that play into it? I think what's been challenging, and I would say for, I don't want to assume, but for everyone is it's hard to plan. We're all planners. We plan things around specific dates. A show goes on sale, a show plays off. We build back to it. And everything's a moving target right now. I will say that we feel fortunate that fall of next year and into 2022 is looking promising from a tour standpoint. And we will be planning a huge blowout, everything. I have my thoughts. Our programming folks might think differently. We've been talking about <laughs> I really want a hologram to come. I want like Jimi Hendrix, who's from Seattle, to hologram onto the stage with Kurt Cobain. And I don't know. We'll see. You heard it here first, everyone. Grand opening, Jimi Hendrix with Kurt Cobain. <laughs> everyone. That's not what it's going to be, by the way. Hologram den. Wouldn't that be cool, though? We'll have Eddie Vedder there live. Live on stage. Throw in Macklemore. Why not? Yeah. There you go. Boom. Books. No. So that is being planned, but it's really just, as everyone is, is when do you return? When do you put something on sale? Right. When do people feel comfortable going back into 18,000 seat arenas? It's not now. You know, we know that. And so we're doing a lot of listening and we're doing a lot of conversations with people. I think the other challenge that we've had is I'm sure most of your bookers have had is that the agency and promoter world is completely upended. So people are not at their office. They're furloughed and laid off as well. So it's been a really big challenge, but we're excited for next fall. And I think that if the timeline kind of stands as it is, where stuff starts to return maybe late spring next year and plays in, that will be positioned well. And we'll get to learn from a lot of the things that all of our arena friends have to go through first, which will be an advantage. Did you have any, you know, because I know it's a lot of the newer places that have opened up had so many things in place. You know, they were opening with the suites were all touchpad and there were no keys. So it was all you scanning your thumbprint and a lot of those things have gone away. So, do you know, were there any changes on your end that had to be done with the arena? Well, we're still not fully in that process as far as all of that. We're still in that process. So I wouldn't say that anything has been decided, but it's been great because we've had these conversations about okay, do we even put handles on bathroom stalls or do we have all foot poles? Right. We don't have to go and retrofit a building. We can do it on the front end, you know, and do we even look at things like temperature scans at the entries as part of the mag 
you know, the machines, we can look at these things a little bit more forward thinking than having to retrofit. And all of those conversations with our operations folks and our events folks are going on now. But I think that, and I don't want to give away too much, but I think that with help from some of our friends at Amazon, there's some really cool technology out there that hasn't necessarily been introduced to the world. Spoilers. I like it. I like it. I like the things. I don't promises. I'm like on the fringe of it. We're all just going to chip everyone and you'll just walk in. It'll be fine. Press release coming soon. <laughs> Hopefully soon. We're all hoping for soon, right? Yeah. Hey, um, I want to talk a little bit more about the NHL and kind of what you guys are doing there. But before we get there, let's step back in time a little bit. Let's go back to uh, Rosie in high school. Oh, gosh. We're going to take you way back there. Who is Rosie Sell in high school and, and how did you kind of find your way into this business? Gosh, that's a great question. And it's so well-timed because I just got invited to my class of 2001 Belgrade High School, Belgrade, Montana is where I grew up because they're trying to plan their 20-year reunion. And I was like, oh. It happens real fast. It happens so fast. But then it's also been really fun to see where everyone went. I went to Belgrade High, Montana, small school. There was 140 people in our graduating class. So people knew everyone. So it's been fun to see what people are up to. So I was an athlete. I played volleyball, track, and cross country, and softball, and any other sport I could get my hands on outside of basketball. I don't know why. I'm tall, if anyone doesn't know me. But I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to go into business, whatever that meant. (laughs) You know, like, I'm like, I'm going to go into business. It sounds good. Yeah, it sounds like something that you should do. So I went to Carroll College, which is in Helena, Montana, another small school. It's an NAIA school. And I played volleyball there. And I leaned towards marketing. Again, I was like, I'm going to do sports marketing. Again, I had no idea what that meant. You, you don't, right? When you're, you're that age, you're like, I'm going to go do You think you know, but you have no idea. You have no idea. So I went and I got my bachelor's in business administration. And, but then we had these concentrations. So I concentrated in finance and marketing. Then I moved out to Seattle with a girlfriend of mine, my roommate, who was from here. And I was like, well, I'm going to go see the world. Montana, I love that place. It definitely holds a special place in my heart. But I came out to Seattle and started looking for a job because I was living off my credit card with her and her mom. (laughs) You know, I was searching for sports marketing jobs. What does that even mean? I have no idea. You know, went through a couple of really rough interviews. I knew I didn't want to work in professional sports. I know that's a weird thing to say, I think, but I knew I didn't want to work for like the Seahawks or the Mariners. I just didn't, it wasn't my passion. I love them. I love all of watching sports. I love that, but I wanted to keep that maybe for myself. Hmm. I know it's a weird thing. People are like, what? Because everyone wants to do that. Yeah, sure. I ended up needing a job at some point. And so I went and worked for a venture capital firm, taking my finance background. It's called Voyager Capital, and I had a really phenomenal boss. I ended up just being the front desk administrative person to a finance specialist, and he basically taught me how to use Excel in a way that I've never had to know before, which I've used a lot in my career. Really, really great first job. Got me an apartment on my own and those sorts of things. But then I really was like, okay, I love these people, but I do not love, you know, finance and tech as much as maybe some others in this world do. So I went back to school and this was right around, oh my gosh, was this like 06? No, no, no. I graduated in 06. This is 08. So I went back to school at Seattle U and got my master's in sports administration. And it was a really great program for a couple of reasons. And the biggest one for me was just networking and understanding how the world of sports and entertainment work. Because it's not really something at that time. There's a lot more programs out now. But really, that wasn't something that people did or had insight into unless you just jumped into it. 
through that, I got a position as a marketing coordinator at the Seattle Sports Commission, which is, as people know, if they work with their sports commissions, I'm sure they do in a lot of different things. I know, Dave, you do probably. Yep. Some places don't have them. Some places don't have them. Some places it's their convention and visitors bureau. It's kind of all over. And then I got to produce events. We did a sports award show. We did Washington State Games, so the state games. I got to work on the Olympic dive trials when they came through. I got to bid on FIFA World Cup for 2018 and 2022 when Seattle was a bid city with the U.S. bid. So I got to do some really cool things. And then AEG, who had a support contract with Key Arena, was hiring a marketing manager. And so through some connections, somehow got onto that and jumped right in. And that was how I got to Key Arena. That's great. It's such an interesting thing to hear people's paths to get where they're going. Was your first EAMC that you went to Vancouver? Is that right? It was Vancouver. Yeah. 2011. Yeah. Yeah. I remember meeting you there because your boss at the time, right? Stevie? Stevie. She was phenomenal. I have to say Stevie was one of the best bosses because she just taught me how to be kind of like push, just push, just push and push and get hungry and, and try to do things better and different. But she also, and bless her heart, like I said, she's phenomenal. She hired me and then two weeks later went on maternity leave and I had not. <laughs> Whoa. So I was like, oh, there you go. Learn to swim. Oh yeah. Red hot chili peppers, I think was my first on sale and I completely maybe botched it a little. <laughs> <laughs> Good thing is it sold out. So. Yes, there you go. So you couldn't, didn't botch it too bad. That's good. Do you remember, you know, where it was along the way that you fell in love with this job and decided, yeah, this is my career? Gosh, you know, I always go back to sound really corny, but I think event people, we're all event people on this podcast, if you will. It might have been Coldplay's Milo Zido tour. It was the first time they had RFID bracelets into an arena tour, and they had so much confetti. And so I'm sitting there, and it had sold out, and it was a 360 show. And I was just sitting here like, oh, my gosh, this is amazing. And everyone's singing. And it was just this really cool shared experience that I think that when you get bit by the event bug, yeah, like, you know what? I actually had a part in this. I brought some of these people together. This was part of this collective team. We did this and these people came away with such an amazing experience. And I don't know, I, I would say that may be the time that I bid it, but I also just loved the back end of events. So when I was at the sports commission and we were producing sports star of the year, being behind the scenes and coordinating all of the media and running ticketing and marketing and doing all of that. I don't know. You, you just kind of feel like you have an important role. And I liked that. Paul, you mentioned Vancouver and EAMC. It might've been Austin the EAMC in Austin. But Rosie, one of my first memories of you is we were on a team building team together. And I believe you were riding a mechanical bull. I've rode a mechanical bull, I think at three EAMCs. <laughs> yeah. Which one day, if you got to be way more specific. Yeah. Yeah. You got to be specific, but that is true. And I lost, there was a gentleman from North Dakota or South, one of the Dakotas who won that year. And I was like, I'm never going to win yeah. a bull riding competition against a guy from North Dakota. <laughs> like it was just unfair from the beginning. I think he was a ringer or something, you know, he was too good. He did it in college, he rode bulls in college. I got second. That's when she had to retire. She's like, never again am I gonna ride bulls. No, I've done it one more time. I think I did it one more time <laughs> <laughs> after that. No, I actually, at EAMC in Vancouver, we all went out and had adult beverages, and I ended up on a bowl at some bar in Vancouver. These are some of the stories for the After Hours podcast, which we'll be launching in 2020. Oh, phenomenal idea. Yes. <laughs> uh, Rosie, so then walk me through, let's, let's get, hop off the bowl. <laughs> walk me through kind of your journey through Seattle, and then led you to Minneapolis for a little bit too, right? So how did that transition happen? 
Our little team with AEG at Key Arena was pretty great. And I had a boss named Jay Cooper, who is still with AEG. And he's one of my favorite human beings in the world. And he gave me a lot of opportunities. I went down and helped Dino Rotolo open T-Mobile Arena in Vegas in 20, I think that was 16, 14, 16. I'm getting my years messed up. It's a little blurry, yeah. It was Vegas. You know, being able to go do that and see that firsthand and kind of live that and be in Vegas for 10 days, which is not ideal, but that was really amazing. And I was able to take that opportunity and get to know other people in my company outside of my little key arena world, but really, you know, get some exposure to some of our corporate teams in LA. That was really, I think, a really great thing for me personally. And, you know, just learning more about the business side of it, not just my little world at Key Arena, which was pretty unique in the AEG facility network. So then flash forward, the city of Seattle puts out an RFP to redo Key Arena. And there's some very specific stipulations around that. One of them being that it was completely privately financed building. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's another thing that we're doing, by the way. (laughs) So it makes it challenging, right? So I was part of the AEG proposal back to the city because we wanted to do a similar thing that OQ is doing now. Different, obviously, but we wanted to respond to that RFP. Went through that whole process. Really, really interesting to go through that large of an RFP AEG didn't end up being awarded the project. And so I had a decision to make and I said, what do I want to do? I wanted to grow my career. I wanted to learn new things. I wanted to look at a different market potentially. I said, right? Like, am I only good in Seattle in my head? Yeah. Turns out I am, by the way. No. Um, (laughs) Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. No. And so I was really fortunate. AEG took a look at me and they said, you know what? We would love to have your presence at Target Center and go see what you can do there. And we've got this regional role too. So you'll help Kate Girardi, who's down in Arizona, you know, beef up our corporate network marketing for all the venues. And I was really fortunate to be able to go do that. And they're a great team. They're such a fun team. Obviously, Karen Swan, who I know has been laid off, unfortunately, due to all of this, but she's such an OG in our world. You know, the GM there, he Lombardi, and I got to meet a lot of really, really great people. And I got to hire an awesome team. Like I think a couple of them are on our EMC planning committee. Um, so I'm going to take credit for that, by the way, <laughs> who are really, really great young arena marketers that are coming up. But I think in the end, I lasted about 12 months and it was one of those OVG came to me and said, Hey, we're going to be now hiring this position. Do you want to come back? And my husband was traveling back to Seattle probably once a month. We're kind of living these separate lives a little bit. And so I said, you know what? I'm going to do it. I'm going to come back. And I think that it was the right move for me. It was a really, really eye-opening experience at Target Center. I wouldn't change it because I learned a ton from them. Are you a bit of a masochist for cold temperatures? It's interesting that when, no. whenever you're like, okay, I'm going to finally leave Seattle, then you go to a possibly colder climate maybe in Minneapolis. Okay, first of all, Seattle is not that cold. I know it's not Kentucky. <laughs> no, but I was from Montana. When I looked at it, I said, I'm from Montana. I can definitely handle Minnesota. And I will give props to all those Minnesotans out there because I could not. It was cold. It was colder than anything I've ever experienced. And it is so intense. And it's like a way of life there. I've got family there and my sister went to college up there and it's it's crazy. You know, they prepare to have their eyebrows frozen when they go outside. And it's yeah, it's wild. I show everyone my screenshot. January 29th, 2019 feels like negative 51. Yeah. It's a neat city. It's obviously had some real challenges over the past year as have some things out there in the Pacific Northwest. And But there's some great people yeah. who are there and it's a great city. What did you take away from that whole Minnesota experience? 
That was the first time I got to really work with a professional team. We're a bigger professional team, I should say. So we have the Storm here, who are champions, by the way, 2020 WNBA champs. What up? <laughs> so I worked with them, and but they're just a different, the WNBA is a smaller team. So working with the Timberwolves, that was my first experience, which was great. And then I think what I also took away from it was really taking a look at all of my media relationships because I've had them here for so long. Having to start fresh is harder than I thought it was going to be, honestly. But it was great. It was like, okay, I got to figure out who all these stations are, who are the right people, what are the clusters, and like really start to cultivate those uh, relationships on my own and really realizing how important they are in our world because you can get so many things accomplished. It was a bigger role for me in a bigger arena, quite frankly. So I got to touch a little bit more on different sides of the business, whether it was in the food and beverage space or, you know, with booking, getting more involved in the process there. I did my first Trump rally. That was a learning experience, I will say, for sure. You learn a lot. You learn a lot when you do a presidential event. You do. And I'd done Bernie Sanders in Seattle. Different, different events, just so we're <laughs> Different events. As much as my personal feelings towards it was really hard, it was one of professionally a really, really interesting process to go through. And you learn a lot about different types of events, which I think is important. Well, I'm sure too, just as any of us get really excited when we tour a new building, right? You know, especially during EAMC, where often when we're in a city, we get to see that local arena. It doesn't matter if it's, you know, 10 days old or 50 years old. You see all these kids in a candy store kind of, oh, how did, you know, where is your, you know, egress and da-da. Oh, that's located over here. Oh, how unique. You know, everyone kind of is going into every corner. So I'm sure... Also, it was just kind of interesting to get absorbed into a new arena and sort of see how it was different than Key Arena. And I'm sure it's going to be very different than Climate Pledge Arena. And there's things that are probably worse in every arena than other ones. And there's things that are really unique and better. And so I think I can speak for myself, you know, whenever I see an arena, it's really interesting just to sort of see all the little intricate differences and how you can maybe borrow something from this one to make yours better, borrow something from that one. Hey, Halo. I know. Sorry about that. That's her dog in the background. <laughs> Uh-oh. We're yelling at the dog. He's grumbling about something. <laughs> no. He's being protective. He's just grumbling for no reason. Sorry. Paul, I completely agree. I'm the same way. Like when we went up to every place that we've gone, you're right. Like Scotiabank was really fun to go and tour and see their backstage areas and figure that all out. Um, hopefully one day, maybe we'll get to go do Climate Pledge Arena. This building is so unique, you guys. So obviously built in 1962, you have the World's Fair. In the 95 renovation, they went down 30 feet. We went down another 15 feet. So when you come into the arena, you're going to be at your upper concourse, basically. Our main concourse is like an upper concourse. So psychologically, I think people enjoy feeling going down to their seats versus having to go up for the cheap seats. I think that that's going to be really fun. I kind of nicknamed it in my head, the Rave Cave. I mean, it is going to be a really, really beautiful, intimate building, but it's all underground. And that's kind of unique. Yeah, that's very cool. I know I have been into uh, one or two older buildings that have that design. And it is a very cool feeling that when you walk in and then you can walk down because you start off and you're like, hey, I'm here and this is cool. But instead of walking further away from things, yeah, no, it's a huge perception change for people. So that's pretty cool. Hey, um, we heard your dog barking. Yep. I heard you mention your husband. Tell me a little bit about who you're there living with and your family and, and kind of how you balance that home life with the work life. Yeah, that was Halo. And he now he's just staring outside like, I don't know, he heard something. And so he's like, hey, everyone, someone's here, but no one's here. <laughs> um, 
He's my fur child. He's 10 years old. And it's just him and my husband. Kendall and I have been married 10 years. We found this house that we absolutely love in Seattle when we first moved back in February. And we are right by called Alki Beach. I play beach volleyball, so it's perfect for me. We just love it here. We're having a really good time. As far as like balance, I'm extremely lucky. Kendall is, he's a homebody. And I think he'll be okay with me saying that. He's a homebody and he has no problem saying, oh, you have to do this. I'm going to go do this other thing. And so I think we've been able to make it work because we're pretty independent people in general. And he loves to come to events. He's a huge fan of events, but he's definitely not one that needs to be in everything all the time. He's more like, oh, are we in the suite or no? (laughs) But he's been really supportive, right? He just wants me to go take over the world, which is what I think is great in a partner. But he's got his own world. He works in tech. So he's got an office downstairs right now. We're cohabitating on the office level. So he's got downstairs. I've got upstairs um, on my teeny tiny little like childhood desk that I (laughs) took out of storage. He's got this huge setup. It's got three screens. It's fine, but it's good. So he's been really supportive. And then we have all of our family is in Montana. So we get to go back. Okay. And then I just have a really great network of friends here too. We call it our full fam, like four couples. I've got a couple of kids in there as well and dogs everywhere, but it's good. You know, I find that the biggest success for surviving 2020 for couples has been having separate spaces. So if you can be on separate stories of the house, if you're that lucky that you can actually just have a little bit of separation, it's good to miss you for a little bit. Oh, we learned that one quickly because I think we're both loud talkers on Zoom. So when we first moved, we moved into an Airbnb when we were looking for a place to live. And it was just a little teeny tiny like Airbnb. And so when we first had to start working from home, it was at the dining room table. It was one of those like circular, like four person bistro sets. So his screen was like right up against mine. And I was like, this is not going to work. You cannot do this. <laughs> He's very animated when he talks and I'm very, and it was just, we we're going to knock something over. You know, you talked about how he wants you to take over the world, right? As a woman in this industry, obviously women are very prevalent in the marketing side of things. But as you've learned a little bit about booking and stuff, have you found any challenges there? You know what? I've actually been really fortunate. I think, especially in this organization, we take inclusiveness and diversity really, really seriously. We have goals that are set to it. And I believe the number of women in our company right now are at 45%. And I think we're in the 30s for leadership roles, something like that. So it's really something that we take to heart and we want to grow it every day. We look at candidates really, really closely when we want to make sure we have diverse voices. I don't know. I think that for me, just being able to stand up. And I think, actually, let me go back. I think that Stevie, I will, I will credit Stevie for this. When I first got into this industry, because she was not taking anything, she's like, I'm good at my job. I do this. And then you're just going to respect me for this because this is what I'm doing. And, and having that kind of presence, I think has helped me in that regard. But I've been really fortunate. I don't think I've had some of the other challenges and that I know a lot of women have in our industry. And I think that that happens when you have a really good mentor. I think that that's really important. And in Seattle, again, working for a city building, basically for a lot of times, it was also a huge piece of it. And people got opportunities based on their merit. But I would say, I think the biggest thing was having a really great mentor and helping kind of weed through some of that. You know, for that 23-year-old who's just graduated college and is just kind of cracking into the live event marketing industry, and they're listening to this podcast, what would you tell them would be one of the importance to, you know, succeeding in this industry? relationships. I think we always say that, but it's so important. I've had, even since I've moved back here, but a lot of like people reaching out on LinkedIn and they're like, Hey, I just want to learn about you. And I want to learn about how you got here. And I'm just trying to figure out what's next in my career, where I want to go and where I can take it. And I think that sometimes we're not as good as responding because we're crazy busy, but I think that that's really, really important is starting to build those relationships 
And in, in a really natural way, because I think everyone doesn't want to feel like they're pressured into hiring this person because they had this conversation, but just being really authentic and saying, I'm just trying to learn as much as I can. And then taking on things, starting at the bottom, like, I want to help you do this. I want to help you with your, you know, street teaming. I want to help you with this promotion that you're doing or have this idea and really being able to take ownership of some things. Because I think as we all know, and I'm, I'm somewhat curious how everyone's going to come out of this. And I think everyone maybe on on this call specifically is curious, how are we going to come out of this? Are the agencies and the promoters marketing departments look completely different? Are they going to be cut? Are they not going to be as regional? Is everything going to happen on a national level? Are you going to rely on the buildings a little bit more? And we're already so strapped. I think people find it shocking when I tell people how many marketing people most of the big buildings in our industry have. They're like, wait, what? I'm like, yeah, no, it's like two people. Yeah, yeah. You know, and so I think that when you come into it as a younger person, you're like, I want to learn. Let me take on a project. I'm not trying to like take over the world, see what I can do and then deliver on it. I think that that would be a good place to start, but really building relationships, I think. I think like you said, it's really important that people not only have ideas, but then they follow through on them and they own them. And then they have to understand what comes with that. You get a lot of accomplishment and if you have this great idea and then you really see it through yourself and make sure that it comes to fruition and then it does really well, then that's feather in your cap. So I think you really hit the nail on the head saying, you know, it's important that you really take ownership of stuff and have kind of an entrepreneurial spirit to you to where you're willing to help people out and really hit the ground. I think we've all had various interns. I'm sure all three of us have had numerous interns over the years. And I think we would probably all agree that some of the better ones are not the ones that you're having to sit there and look over their shoulder all day because then it's not only not helping you, but it's creating more work for you. And you're hoping that they're going to develop and get something out of it. But the ones that are really willing to help, but then also have those bold ideas, and then they're going to put boots to the ground and actually make sure that they happen and take stuff off your plate that gets recognized. People see those people and think, okay, I can really trust this person to follow through with something. And so I want to promote them and I want to see them advance in their career. And I think they have a lot of potential. I would echo or just add on to that. I think being curious has helped me a lot in my career, wanting to learn, okay, so I've got my little box. This is what I'm supposed to do, but how does this work? How does operations work? How does this do? How? So that way I can speak to it when I'm thinking about this crazy promotion that I want to do. And I want to put like a 40 person drum line on the whatever. And their operations people are like, why are you even talking to me about that? (laughs) You know, whatever it is, right. You know, like learning the other parts of the business and being curious and asking about it. Because I think a lot of times we get a little bit siloed and like my thing is the most important thing, but learning how the whole thing fits together into a puzzle will help you. And it also will endear you to, you know, other people in your arena. Having been around you in your buildings, that is something that I'll say that you do a really good job at. And that's not just because you're a friend of mine, but it's something that, you know, like when I went to Target Center, you hadn't been there that long and you already knew all the people. You were super friendly and kind with everyone on staff. You were jumping in and helping wherever is needed. And I think that is a really important aspect, like you said, is even though we're in marketing or we're in PR or publicity or whatever it is, you really need to meet all your people, whether it's you know security, whether it's operations, whatever it is, because your things that you're thinking of are going to involve them. And if you don't have a good relationship with them or you don't understand this fun little idea you think of is going to create hours and hours of work for them when they're already busy, I think it's really important to have that relationship and foster it. 
don't know if I answered your question, Dave. Maybe I did. <laughs> no, you definitely did. No, absolutely. And everybody always teases it. Everybody's in marketing because we all have to sell tickets, but everybody's also in operations, right? And if we if the operation doesn't come together, the whole thing doesn't fall apart, which is why I want to take things back to today. So let's bring things back to 2020 and the unleashing of the Kraken made huge national news, right? And just a lot of excitement there. So you are in a unique position where you are announcing a team in 2020, but also having a, some folks that have arena experience in an arena that kind of existed in the past, but you're bringing in an NHL. How are you starting off that relationship with the team as you're looking to you know, launch this NHL franchise with the arena? That's a great question because I think, and I've done a bit of digging along a lot of different, I've sure I've reached out to almost every building and been like, okay, how does this really work? Right. Because I think as some inherent conflict within a team in an arena, there's sometimes the business goals are not necessarily aligned depending on the deal structure. Right. Every arena is so different. And some, you know, the team is running the arena. So it's a little bit, you know, different. And we started out as a shared services agency model. So I was going to have a small team on my side. And then um, I have a counterpart, Heidi Detmer with the Kraken, who's running the marketing on team side. And we were going to have this agency that we would pull from. So we'd have graphic design and social and email and web and video and all of these different things that we'd be able to share from. And I talked to a couple of different buildings that are set up that way and they all work and it's not a negative, but there's always the inherent challenge of the team. And rightly so, they get pulled really, really quickly into the priority is the team. And that's kind of, you know, what I was trying to avoid. I was trying to put things into place and perspective about communicating what our side of the business does for the arena and how the Kraken and any team are really, really important. We're the home of the Kraken. I love their branding. They did such a phenomenal job of launching the team. But also there's this piece of our second tenant is music is how we talk about it. We even create a little logo, Client Pledge Music, because that is so important to us and to the success of the building. So kind of having those conversations early on to a, a few sports people who not they don't necessarily understand what it's like to market a show, to market a concert where you don't own the branding. Right. To be at the back and call of a promoter who maybe doesn't understand the market or, you know, at least doesn't understand what's going on in the market or the, the deal points of your arena. Like, I want this, this, and this. Well, I don't own that and that and that, but I can ask for it, right? So having kind of those conversations about the challenges of how we market arena events with her and her team. And they've been phenomenal because the way that we've gone into the deal process for this arena is that we are very much two separate organizations, but one aligned vision. And what's successful for them is successful for us. And we're trying to set that standard now saying, you know, when we build in our deal for broadcast, let's make sure we keep music in mind so that I can get assets out of it. And vice versa, can we figure out a way to really leverage all of the other 60 to 70 concerts, which is what we're planning on, those bodies that are going to be in the building, how do we leverage those for the Kraken in a really meaningful way? And so we've been really fortunate that on the front end, we're having those conversations now and building in those pieces now to say, what makes us the most successful is when we work together and not when we work apart. And it's always a challenge, right? Like the building's going to get overshadowed a little bit by the team. That's just the way it is. Yep. There's a very specific fan base for hockey and I've got Globetrotters and we've got WWE and we've got Tool and we've got, you know, Celtic women. I don't know. We've got everything, right? So it's a very <laughs> different, it's a different kind of audience to go after, but extremely fortunate that we've been able to set at the highest levels. This building does not work without all elements firing at the same time. 
Yeah. And there's a lot of opportunity there too, for the team, right? A lot of opportunity for growth. So, you know, you have a lot of sports fans that are going to come to the games all the time. are going to watch it from home, but there's such a diverse group of people that come to events and concerts, as you said, when both of them are operating in conjunction, it works really well to benefit both parties. Yeah. And we're trying to take that to the level of what does our tech stack look like so that we can layer on top and we're not stepping on everyone's toes, but we're also not misaligned. Both of us, both sides, we want a really, really clear picture of who's walking into the building so that we can document that customer journey and upsell them or, you know, create loyalty programs. We want to do that and we can do that together much more easily than we can apart. Yeah. And I think you're in a great place to be able to kind of in a way, this 2020 is kind of forces things to move a little bit slower, which is not always a bad thing, because when you're launching here, this is your one chance to kind of set those patterns in place that become the, well, that's how we've always done things. You know, that's always the reason of, well, we can't do that because this is kind of how that relationship has been built. But you're on that front end building that relationship with the new NHL franchise, very unique position and kind of a great spot to be in. Yeah, very fortunate. And they're a great team too. And they are very curious as well about like, how does this work? and and I'm the same way because I've never worked for a team. I'm like, so, hey, what, how does this work? How does this work? What are you guys doing? What in the thing that I've learned the most, and I'm sure people who are at an NHL building or any, any team building that have worked really closely with the team, it's like the number of restrictions. And I mean, I always kind of in the back of my head thought, well, you know, they can do whatever they want. It's their team, but they can't. There's so many restrictions placed on them by the NHL and all for good reasons, but there's a lot of hoops they have to jump through. And so we kind of can commiserate on that sometimes. Absolutely. Well, Rosie, it's been awesome talking with you today and wish you the best of luck. Before we close things out, I want to do a little rapid fire here with you. I have just a few quick questions and just want you to give me your instant answer right off the top of your head. All right. Okay. Here we go. First concert. Local. Favorite concert. Sting and Paul Simon. Nicest musician you've ever met. Blake Shelton. Coolest production you've ever seen. Lady Gaga. If you could play in any band for a week on tour, who would it be? This is going to sound really dorky, but The Neighborhood. Yeah. No one really knows who they are, but I love them. Your favorite social platform? Instagram, for sure. If you went on tour, what would your name be? Oh, I'm, I'm not cool enough to go on tour, you guys. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know. I haven't thought about that. I don't know if I have an answer. You don't have, a, like, you don't have like a, a DJ? I don't have a band name. That's horrible. I love the hashtag that I've started myself that the team's like, don't do that. But I'm like, I love it. It's Beast from the Deep. I'll go with that one. <laughs> Beast from the Deep. I like that one. I was going to, I like Rave Cave too. I like, I like that one too. Rave Cave. Rave Cave. Oh, that's a good one. Rave Cave. There you go. Uh, hey, if people want to follow you on social, they want to find you, or if they want to follow the new venue, point everybody where to check them out. So Climate Pledge Arena, Climate Arena on Twitter, because we are too long for full Climate <laughs> Pledge Arena, unfortunately, um, for the arena and climatepledgearena.com. I'm on LinkedIn under, I believe I'm under Rosie Sell. Actually, it's a really great question. I'm not sure if I know that. And then I'm on Twitter as Rosie Lou 4 On LinkedIn, the cell, it's S-E-L-L-E, right? Correct. Paul Hooper, anything there to add? Uh, no, I mean, thanks for coming on. I'm excited for you. Yeah, I feel like you all are really innovating a lot there, which is really cool. As you said, I mean, you're really fortunate in being able to start from the ground up on so much with both the partnership with the NHL, but also with innovations on the green side and but kind of aligns in a good spot where you're not having events because you're working on opening the building, but there's not really events going on. So you're able to put that out of your mind almost for a bit. Yeah, I think it's such an exciting opportunity. 
No, thank you. I can't wait to maybe, you know, have you guys come to tour the rave cave. No, we're going to use hashtag greenhouse. That's what I'm like also trying to get trending. <laughs> uh, EAMC 2027. Let's call it now. There you go. Yeah. I'll put you guys down for that one. Hey, thank you again, Rosie. And thanks to everyone for listening to Adventures in Venue Land. Remember, you can subscribe and find more episodes wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. We love your five-star reviews. So you can help others find us. And until the next adventure, I'm Dave Rettelberger. And I'm Paul Hooper. Thanks for listening, everyone.